Welcome to episode 7 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. For our fifth grade yearbook, instead of a quote, prospective graduates were tasked with writing an original poem about what they wanted to be when they grew up. I submitted the following poem. I'll be the bassist in a heavy metal band. We'll play on the streets and on the sand. A lousy poem, sure. But I'm proud of the fact that I did go on to play bass in a heavy metal band. And while I'm not sure we ever got to play on pavement or on the sand, the band did release a few records that received some attention and critical praise. I don't know how many of my fellow classmates ended up in careers as astronauts, presidents, and ninjas, but my guess is very few. I was obsessed with heavy metal, and and daydreaming about it got me through the school day. Once, when my mom finally agreed to buy me, at the end of the school day, the Bathory album I wanted, 1990's Hammerheart, I spent the entire school day trying to imagine in real time what the album would sound like, based on the cover art, song titles, and the lengthy track durations. I'd stare at the clock and compose in my head, my vision for what the long songs on Hammerheart might sound like. In general, I now began to think of time in terms of song lengths. Metallica's Call of Cthulhu is nine minutes long, so if I can just play that song in my head three times, class will be over and it'll be lunchtime. My passion for metal transcended the sonic aspects of the music. Metal fans seemed quite far from the cliché of the brainless, knuckle-dragging Hesher in the denim vest. I didn't know anyone who fit this description, though I suspect the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High is largely responsible for the stereotype. But on the contrary, metal bands were always peppering their lyrics with references to films and literature, and seemed cerebral, independent, and free-thinking. Through metal, I was getting what a favorite guitarist of mine, Pat Metheny, calls progressive education the notion of music as a lens through which one discovers the greater world. In his great book, Lament from Epirus, author, collector, and musicologist Christopher C. King identifies both the distinct mania of the music obsessive and its far-reaching potential for education beyond matrix numbers, deep cuts, and song titles. Speaking about the 78s he collects, King writes, quote, I understand my musical surroundings, perhaps even my physical and cultural environment, through this antiquated medium. My family remained encouraging of my emerging bibliophilia. The deal was that whenever I finished a book, my parents would drive me to the mall to purchase a new one. I had recently completed Stephen King's Salem's Lot, and cajoled Pops into taking me to the small bookshop near the mall. I'm looking for James Joyce, I told the shopkeeper at the counter. We have that, he whispered, his eyes widening. Come with me. He led me over to the appropriate shelf and asked me if I had any idea what James Joyce book I wanted to read. Stream of consciousness, I told him confidently. The shopkeeper patiently explained to me that stream of consciousness was not a book, but a writing style pioneered by authors like Joyce and Virginia Woolf. He said there were examples of this style in all of Joyce's books, and suggested I start with a novella called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I think you'll enjoy this one, he said, leading me back to the counter. I placed the $10 bill my mother had given me on the counter. No, no, said the shopkeeper. This one's on me. Any boy your age interested in James Joyce deserves a free book. If only he'd known. 
that my curiosity about Joyce was based entirely on the fact that my favorite thrash metal band at the time, Creator, had a song on their album Extreme Aggression titled Stream of Consciousness, and a thoughtful contemporary review of the album in one of my magazines alluded to the connection to Joyce. Years later, I would buy a CD reissue of Extreme Aggression and learn from the retrospective liner notes that the song was inspired not by Joyce at all, but by a book called Seth Speaks, The Eternal Validity of the Soul. But by then I was done taking book recommendations from Creator. Metal also had the unintended effect of expanding my vocabulary. I began using words in arguments with my parents and grandparents that left them befuddled. But that's a double standard. This ravioli is a monstrosity. Don't be so enslaved by propaganda, Mom. When I'd occasionally ask my parents or grandparents to define a word for me I'd heard in a song, like insalubrious or detruncation, I frequently found them at a loss. From this I deduced that the grown-ups in my favorite bands were smarter than the grown-ups in my family. Metal was educational. It was making me smarter, if only superficially. More importantly, it was making me want to be smart. Heavy metal wasn't my only interest that allowed me to fake being brighter than I actually was. I recall Pops being very impressed that I was able to spell Schwarzenegger. He can spell it, said Pops with pride, and I can hardly say it. What Pops failed to realize was that I had a large movie poster for the Arnie vehicle Commando on my bedroom wall, and I had spent many restless nights staring up at his name rendered in block print above my bed. Progressive education, indeed. Earning the respect of older people gave me a strange thrill, especially when those older people seemed cool or otherwise tapped into an alternative way of life. One day as my mother retrieved me from school, I boasted to her that I had received a good grade on a spelling test. To reward me for this, she agreed to take me to the mall to pick out a CD. I wanted Disintegration, the latest album by The Cure. Once inside the store, I spotted the album and reached for the long box. As I did, my hand collided with that of an attractive, well-dressed woman in her late 20s. Susie Sue vibes. Good choice, said the woman with a smile that seemed to stop time, reaching for a second copy of Disintegration from the bin below. Clearly, this should have been a fateful moment of kismet. This was the woman I was meant to marry, and this incident should have been our world-beating meeting story. Our hands touched, reaching for a Cure album. Perfect. But there was a problem. I was about 11 years old, and we were star-crossed by an imposing gulf of at least a decade. I smiled shyly and began to walk with her to the register. Like the guy in the bookstore, she offered to buy my copy of the album, but I informed her that I was soon going to be a music critic and would thus be able to write it off. To her credit, the woman did not laugh at me or make me feel ridiculous for saying this very ridiculous thing, but instead took down my name, or pretended to, promising me she would look for my reviews in the paper. She told me it was nice to meet me. I returned to my mother's car, staring at the cover of Disintegration all the way home. I began taking guitar lessons while concurrently teaching myself, using guitar magazines and through no small amount of independent trial and error, all the customary heavy metal guitar tricks, like palm muting the strings and manipulating the notes to create pinch harmonics. I begged my dad to rent the horror film Trick or Treat, which starred Gene Simmons and featured Ozzy in a brief cameo as a televangelist. The antagonist of the movie is the fictional and brilliantly named Sammy Kerr, a recently deceased rock hero whose demonic spirit is subsequently summoned via seance by the film's main character, the tormented nerd Ragman. 
Ragman was played by Mark Price, who's probably best known for playing Skippy on Family Ties. The film's set designer was thorough and left no stone unturned. I mean, Ragman's room looked exactly like my own, and I recognized all the bands on his wall and the bumper stickers on his car. All that is except one. Tracking down the band Omniarch plagued me for years, until I learned that the band was fictional. My then-hero Blackie Lawless was originally slotted to play the role of Sammy Kerr, but declined the part when the producers refused to let his band Wasp contribute the soundtrack, which was ultimately provided by the awesome, but largely forgotten, UFO motorhead supergroup Fastway. Sammy Kerr was instead played by Tony Fields, whose decidedly unmetal CV included roles in Michael Jackson's Beat It and Thriller videos, as well as the film version of A Chorus Line. He did a great job, though. In early 1988, I experienced another pivotal moment watching an episode of the Morton Downey Jr. show with my dad. For those who don't know, Downey Jr. was a precursor to the soon-ubiquitous talk show provocateur, a chain-smoking misanthrope who obnoxiously insulted and hectored his guests to the delight of his equally pugnacious fans. The episode my dad and I watched concerned the alleged dangers of heavy metal music. On the panel, the priggish Jennifer Norwood of the nonprofit Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, squared off in a debate against J.J. French of Twisted Sister. It's on YouTube if you want to see it. The episode is a tedious slog even by modern talk show standards, makes Jerry Springer look like Meet the Press, though it does serve as a quaint time capsule. My favorite segment featured a brief cameo by dreamy and maniacal guitar virtuoso The Great Cat, who presciently warns the chain-smoking Downer Jr. that he would eventually die of lung cancer. He would. Cat's persona, think Nancy Spungen as a professional wrestling heel, stole the show. I retain a soft spot for The Great Cat, one of heavy metal's true originals. A Juilliard graduate and violin virtuoso who claimed to be better than Beethoven, Cat's singular blend of classical affectations, speed metal, and sadomasochistic lyrics has one or something of a cult following, including yours truly. For all of her dedication to a persona and unwillingness to break character, she was not what you would call media-trained, often publicly criticizing the quote morons at her record label and referring to the music of Philip Glass and John Cage as atonal crap. I still have my autographed Great Cat poster. It reads, James. On your knees, the great cat. Prized possession. In a later episode, I think I'll tell you about the time I prank called the great cat. My new friend Steve Aquilina brought with him to school a new tape he acquired called Dealing With It by the band DRI. Steve told me I could borrow the lyric sheet for the day. This was a big deal, and I was excited. There were a lot of lyrics. Throughout that school day, I covertly held the album's J-card beneath my desk, ignoring tedious lectures about pollution and the Bill of Rights, reading the words to DRI's songs about Reaganomics and soup kitchens, staring at the photo of the band, trying to imagine what the music sounded like. My friend Steve, like me, was a rabid Misfits fan, and I told him that I had read in one of my magazines that the Cramps and the Damned were often compared to the Misfits, and he should get some of those albums too. Steve's family seemed to have a lot of money, and he always had five new albums to my one. I bought those albums you told me to get, Steve said the following Monday. They suck. He was angry with me, but by now I was beginning to question his taste anyway. Let me have them then, I said. To my surprise, he agreed. Those albums didn't suck at all. Many years later, during my freshman year of college, 
I would appear on the MTV show 12 Angry Viewers. The premise of the show was that each of the dozen contestants would choose a video from the MTV library, and viewers would call in and vote for their favorite, which would then be given the honor of being placed into regular rotation throughout the week that followed. The other guests that week chose contemporary stuff like Bush and Fiona Apple, but I chose the Cramps' Bikini Girls with Machine Guns. I was surprised to find that the producers and behind-the-scenes staff at the network were incredibly hip and praised and high-fived me for my unusual choice. This would ultimately lead to my being hired the following year to co-host my own MTV show, which aired exactly once. But that's a story for later, too. Anyway, the few kids in my sixth grade class who liked metal seemed invested in the music only up to a point. And at some crucial nexus, our ambitions and worldview diverged. I was forever proposing to my various school pals that we form a band, but few took the bait. Steve Aquilina was my last hope. I had it all planned out. I would be the guitarist, and he would be the singer of our thrash metal band, which I'd already decided would be called Racer. It became obvious during Racer's first and only rehearsal that Steve's heart wasn't in it. I grew frustrated, trying to coerce him as best I could, to no avail. I made a last-ditch effort. Steve, do you really want to work in a bank like your dad? I whined. Wouldn't you rather do the dream? Now, okay, yes, this is very likely the corniest thing I've ever uttered to another person, but in my defense, it was deployed as a rhetorical strategy, a manipulative cheap shot. You see, Do the Dream was the title of a song by Steve's then-favorite band, M.O.D. But see, it wasn't Steve's dream to be in a famous thrash metal band. It was mine. This was a hurdle we couldn't cross, and no amount of bullying or convincing would change either of our minds. One day, my mother casually mentioned that one of her new friends in her ceramics class was married to a guy in a heavy metal band. They're called, uh, she said, struggling to remember. I held my breath. Skid Row. My eyes grew wide. I loved Skid Row. My mom told me she would try to convince her friend to get me some autographs. Metal was suddenly everywhere, first in my own family, now in my own neighborhood. The world felt smaller. I watched the band Anthrax host an episode of Headbangers Ball, and the members' thick New York accents reminded me of the people in my own neighborhood. They spoke just like my friends and family. It's impossible to overstate how profoundly this affected me. These guys who made the music I spent hours listening to didn't live on Mount Olympus or even in Hollywood. They lived in neighborhoods dotted with pizzerias and nail salons and basketball courts, just like mine. Maybe they too inexplicably ate dinner at the unusual hour of 4 p.m. every Sunday and had relatives who could hold entire conversations using only quotes from Raging Bull, Rocky, and the Honeymooners. My sister Boo had a caseworker named Sharon. Sharon was in her early 20s, gorgeous, deeply into metal. She dated the locally famous Babylon Bud, the metal DJ on New Jersey's college radio station, WSOU. Bud was known for peppering his mostly metal playlists with Dr. Demento songs like Fish Heads and Dead Puppies. He was a legend. Sharon took a liking to me and would often double as our babysitter when my parents went out to dinner with friends. One night she called Babylon Bud from our kitchen and asked me if I wanted to speak to him. The Babylon Bud? Steve Aquilina was going to be so jealous. James, said Bud, dispensing with pleasantries. Sharon says you like metal. Tell me some bands you like, he commanded. Iron Maiden, I said. Given. Next. 
Megadeth, Given. Who else? I knew I needed to mention something a little more obscure to Bud, so he wouldn't think I was a poser. Uh, Manowar? I eventually said. Manowar's good, even though I usually hate bands that sing about themselves. Babylon Bud was the coolest dude ever, and now, thanks to Sharon, I was his pal. Sharon was also acquainted with several other rock steensters, including Bobby Gustafson of Overkill. Oh, I see that loser all the time, Sharon said. She may as well have produced from her purse a textile from the Shroud of Turin. He's always out there working on his car, she said. I'll take you to meet him someday. Vito Brada from White Lion and several members of Twisted Sister, I was told, also lived on Staten Island. You should come with me to Lemoore sometime, Sharon said. Lemoore was Brooklyn's coolest and most notoriously violent heavy metal club. Cousin Pete's band Carnivore played there all the time, and as part of their act, threw raw meat at the audience from the stage. My mother provided me with the necessary $15 to join the Danzig fan club, Angels of the Seventh Dawn, which earned me glossy photos, a newsletter, stickers, even my own membership card. I still have these. I'm going to try to find them, and if I do, I'll post them on my Patreon page. About twice a year, my dad would purchase concert tickets for us, and together we'd see Iron Maiden and Anthrax, Judas Priest and Testament, Megadeth and Slayer. Can I go down to the mosh pit? I would ask him. Okay, he said, but stay where I can see you, and don't get hurt. On one of our family trips to Ocean City, Maryland, my parents, likely hoping to buy themselves some quiet, gave my sister and I some money to buy ourselves something at the local mall. My parents figured that whatever we chose, it would keep us busy and distracted while they did boring grown-up shit like sunbathing and window shopping and whatever. I decided to buy Exodus's new album, Impact is Imminent, expressing to my mom how much I loved the lyrics. That night in our hotel room, my mother read the lyrics aloud to my dad in an Emily Dickinson-like cadence I had never heard her use. Hey Steve, she called to my dad, get a load of this. Every time you drink and drive, you always think that you'll survive. Till your car is crushed and bent, impact is imminent. Sirens fill the streets aloud. It always draws the biggest crowd. They peel your body off cement. Impact is imminent. Then she howled with laughter as my dad, who at that point was working in highway patrol, just grimaced and rolled his eyes. I guess I didn't get the joke? Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes and please tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. I want to thank everyone who has subscribed or donated to the show so far. I hope you're all enjoying it. Next week, we will explore the controversial topic of music assholes, by which I don't mean butts, but, you know, butt heads. You don't want to miss it. Till then, this is The Toth Zone.